science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Well, welcome aboard. And today, we of course are... Uh, rest assured, I'm keeping an eye on it for you, and I'll keep you up to date, and I can tell you right away that England has just scored. So they are up one to nothing very, very early in the game, so uh, all the English supporters, including myself, I must admit, rejoice, and uh, somewhat of a disappointment so far for, for Italians. All right, let us get going here today, and I will get things rolling with a couple of questions. Everyone's talking about variants these days, of course. So my first question is about that. The Delta variant has several mutations, one of which is coded as D614G. What does that terminology actually mean? What does the D stands for? What is the 614? And what is the G? So if you know the answer to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. So let me repeat it. We're talking about the Delta variant and the mutations that it has. One of the mutations is uh, labeled as D614G. I want to know what that term actually means. What is the D? What is the G? And what is the 614? So 514-790-0800. You can text questions, comments to 514-800. And as usual, I will give you a second question uh, as well. Um, In uh, Octopussy, which is a James Bond movie. Um, James Bond, one of my favorite series, of course. A lot of interesting science and nonsense in there, too. Anyway, in Octopussy, Q presents Bond with a fountain pen that contains a liquid, which uh, 007 later uses to dissolve the metal bars of a cell where he has been incarcerated. What is the liquid in that pen? So in the movie Octopussy, Bond is given a fountain pen that has a liquid in it that he uses to dissolve metal. What is the liquid in that, uh, in that pen? So those are the questions to get things going here today. But let me uh, start out with uh, an interesting story for you. And we're going to go back to the late 1800s. And when a fashionable European gentleman would go out, you would see him wearing a top hat. You'd see him wearing spats. And you know what else? He'd be carrying a walking stick. Why? Well, the walking stick was both a fashion accessory and it was also a defensive item to beat off any attackers in the street. Because, of course, street crime especially in London in those days, was unfortunately relatively common. And some of these older walking sticks actually had a sword inside of them. And you could uh, just draw it out and scare off, or even more than scare off, an attacker. Well, the walking sticks were not quite as popular uh, in North America 
but nevertheless, they they were used and they were served. Uh, they served as a status symbol. And in one particular case, though, a walking stick wasn't used as protection against crime. Rather, it was used to commit one. And that very walking stick, or at least pieces of it, uh, can be displayed, can be seen displayed in Boston in the old state house. Now, there are two interesting features of this uh, relic. One is uh, scientifically interesting and noteworthy, and the other one is uh, unfortunately historically disturbing. Scientifically, the uh, important thing is that the um, walking stick is made of uh, gutta percha, and that is an exudate of a tree uh, that hardens into a latex. It's the palaquium gutta tree, originally native to Malaysia. This is a substance that is referred to as a thermoplastic substance, meaning it can be softened with heat and shaped into a form that is retained when it's cooled. Uh, this was uh, introduced to Europe in 1842 by Dr. William Montgomery, a surgeon who was serving in the East Indies. And anyway, Victorian society quickly took to Gutta Percha. Uh, all kinds of interesting pieces were made of it. Uh, chess uh, pieces, mirror cases, jewelry. Uh, even dentists use it to fill cavities because you could warm it up, it would be soft, and it would harden to fill the cavity. But perhaps the biggest impact was on the game of golf, believe it or not. At that time, golf balls were made of feather-stuffed leather. They were very expensive and not exactly aerodynamic. And balls fashioned out of gutta percha were cheaper and flew further. And if they got dinged up, you could just warm them up in boiling water, and uh, in a special hand press, you could reshape them into a ball. And uh, the popularity of this ball increased even further when they found that just cutting grooves into the surface allowed for a longer flight. And these balls were widely used until the year 1900 when they were replaced by the so-called Haskell ball, which was uh, made of a solid rubber core and wrapped very tightly with rubber uh, threads. Well, rubber and, and uh, gutta percha are actually very closely related, slight difference in molecular structure, but uh, rubber is uh, thermal setting, not thermoplastic, meaning that you, once you have uh, formulated into a specific shape after heating it, you cannot heat it up again and reform it. And really, the, the big development in rubber was due to Charles Goodyear, who found that when you mix rubber with sulfur, it made for a very hard material. This was called vulcanized rubber, after Vulcan, the Roman god of fire. And this, is the, um, this was the golf ball that was first made around 1900. So a hard rubber co core, and that replaced the gutta uh, percha. But Michael Faraday, the brilliant English chemist, who carried out many experiments with electricity, found that gutta percha was an excellent insulator. And that property allowed it to be put to use as a coating for the newfangled telegraph cables. And the first such cable was laid between Europe and North America between 1854-1858. Imagine that, that engineering feat to lay a cable between the continents at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. And that cable was insulated with gutta percha. Unfortunately, it only lasted um, a very short time, a few uh, weeks. But within a few years, by 1865, it had been replaced by a proper cable that worked well, also coated with uh, gutta percha. Okay, but now let me get down to the uh, 
uh, interesting historical aspect of this walking stick that you can see in the Boston State House. It was used in the famous caning of Charles Sumner, a significant blemish on American history. In 1856, Democrat Preston Brooks brutally attacked Republican Charles Sumner with his walking stick. You know where? On the floor of the U.S. Senate, believe it or not, in the Capitol building. Sumner was a dedicated abolitionist, and he had made a very strong speech against slavery. Brooks uh, was a Democrat who favored slavery. And when he attacked Sumner with his uh, walking stick, it was so violent that the stick broke into pieces, some of which were recovered from the Senate floor. They were cut into rings that Southern lawmakers wore on neck chains to show their solidarity with Brooks, who boasted that people begged for pieces of his cane as sacred relics. The caning was followed by demonstrations in northern cities to support Sumner, and in the South, there were also demonstrations to support Brooks. That gutta percha walking stick is a stark reminder of the division in the U.S. that led to the Civil War, which of course started just a few years after uh, this episode in 1856. And that division still exists today, although, of course, there are different ideologies involved. It isn't slavery anymore, but we know that the Republicans and, and Democrats are so far apart on every possible issue. Well, so far, uh, neither party has taken to beating a member of the other party with a walking stick on the floor of the Senate. But there certainly have been some very vigorous verbal outbursts, although they have not really resulted in uh, the same kind of bloodiness as we saw back then in 1856. Anyway, Gutta Percha now is mostly a relic um, of the past, having been displaced by a variety of <clears throat> high-performance polymers. Uh, for example, cables uh, like tele, you know, uh, cables at the bottom of, uh, of waterways and all that. Now they are insulated with uh, polyethylene, not uh, Gutta Percha. But there's one application of gutta percha that persists, still used in dentistry. Although not to fill cavities and, as in the early days, gutta percha is the best material with which to fill root canals after disease tissue has been removed. And believe it or not, there's still a market for gutta percha golf balls. Hickory golfers, a surprisingly large global community, purchase them to play rounds as they would have been played in the 1800s. They use only clubs with shafts of hickory wood instead of metal, and gutties, the gutta percha balls, as they were called, still made by a process like in those nostalgic days of yore when uh, a drive of 160 yards was the best that one could um, hope for in, in those days. But uh, hickory golfers, big world out there you know I, I obviously wasn't aware of this until i started looking into the the history but there are tournaments for hickory golfers in the uk in the us in in france in switzerland in in poland and uh, they play the game the way that uh, the game was played in the 1800s and you know they have these nostalgic views uh, of the past very interesting so there's a link between hickory golfers and the laying of transatlantic cables, and that link is gutta percha, this latex that exudes from a tree 
originally in Malaysia, although now it is grown in, in South America um, as well. You are listening to the Dr. Joe Show, and uh, we're going to take a little break to check for traffic, and we will be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are back, and uh, England still leading uh, 1-0, 20 minutes into the game. Let me remind you of the questions I asked. First of all, what is the liquid that James Bond had in his fountain pen, which would dissolve metal? And when we are talking about the Delta variant, it has a mutation referred to as D614G. I want to know what that terminology means. You give us a call at 514-790-800. I think we have Bonnie on the line. Bonnie? Hello, Dr. Joe. You are my Hi. source when I need an answer. <laughs> you are just absolutely You know what? As, as, when, I, when I hear that, it usually pre uh, means that there's going to be a question that I won't be able to answer. <laughs> okay. okay. Go <laughs> Well, it doesn't matter. Uh, your knowledge is just amazing. Um, I was listening to my radio on Thursday while cooking, so I didn't catch the entire, it was either a, a, a sound bite or a very brief interview. Uh, and I've heard this amazing doctor interviewed before on the radio. Apparently, at the Jewish General Hospital, there's a lab that has been studying for maybe the past year, if not longer, um, why some people don't get, I'm not sure if it's whether they don't, or maybe it's both, whether they don't get COVID and or if they do, uh, they don't even know it. And this is this amazing doctor was interviewed, and he said they've learned that the OAS1 protein is what these people have, and that 30% of people of European descent have this OAS1 protein, and he said it, it emerged as Neanderthals, our ancestors, were um, mixing and mingling and creating babies with, and then he named some other, uh, I don't know if you'd call it prehistoric, but another one of our older ancestors. And so he said, this is why 30% of people of European descent have this. So I have quite a few questions, like I was shouting at my radio, like how can one be tested to see if one has this protein? Well, I, I think uh, it's interesting, but I think those questions are somewhat premature. I mean, I don't know very much about OAS1, but it, it is a protein, and it is okay. produced by a gene, which is also called OAS1, and it does play a role in the immune system. But uh, uh, at this point, as far as I know, I mean, this is really very preliminary. I mean, there's nothing that you can do in order to up your production of OAS1. But uh, 
it's just an interesting bit of, of research at this point that some people who do have that particular gene, and as you suggested, uh, you know, it's specific populations who have it, and uh, they may be protected. But but uh, certainly, uh, as far as I know, there, there's no practical application of this yet. So it's very early research. Right. But that's How could one be tested question. Uh, to see if they have this gene and or protein? It, would it be a blood test or? Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you can test for specific genes. Yes. I mean, I, I don't know if that test is, is being done, you know, uh, at the request of someone. But, I mean, theoretically, of course, it is possible to test for that gene. Yes. Right. So, you know, so I, you know I, uh, until there's more that comes out of this, I, I really can't, uh, I can't comment any further other than that it's interesting but very preliminary research. Okay, well, then, thanks very much for the call. I also had a, an interesting text uh, uh, question from Nick, who is one of our uh, longtime listeners. And uh, uh, he was wondering about when they were laying down the cable across the Atlantic, uh, how was it spliced together? I mean, obviously, it had to be. They did not have a, a, a miles and miles and miles and miles of cable rolled up on the, on the ship. But they did have some very, very large coils of cable, that's, that's for sure. And when that was laid down, another ship would approach, bringing another gigantic roll. But certainly the two would have to be spliced together. I would imagine that, that uh, uh, they were welded together. And the gutta percha covering, that would not have been a problem to put around the weld. Because, uh, as I said, that can be just softened with uh, hot water and then um, uh, molded into, into the proper shape. Uh, I, I bet that the exact technology can be found uh, by Googling in within a few seconds. But uh, just think about that, that the, the amazing task. And, you know, we're talking 1854 of being able to lay a cable down from from um, England to uh, uh, Newfoundland, I think, was the, was the first place. And... Um, how long that is and how deep that cable would, would, you know, have to be submerged, have to be protected against the, the elements. And so gutta percha was really something. And we also have to remember that uh, before this cable, this, of course, was a telegraph cable. Uh, this was long before telephones. So uh, it was just telegraph messages by Morse code. But the miraculous thing was that a message could be sent within minutes Whereas before this, the only way to get any message across the ocean would be by ship. And those ships took weeks to cross the ocean. So, you know, the, the uh, gutta percha uh, layer that made this telegraph cable um, possible was, was a huge uh, breakthrough. And just fascinating uh, technology. And, uh, and as I mentioned, uh, Michael Faraday uh, Michael Faraday was, you know, arguably, you know, the, the greatest uh, English scientist. I say arguably because, of course, there are many great scientists, but the breadth of Michael Faraday's work was, was just amazing. From processes of electrolysis that led to the discovery of elements, uh, to all kinds of studies on electricity, including the first formulation of an electric motor. Uh, he experimented with gases of all, all sorts and... Uh, this was just brilliant work, and uh, most of that was done without the sophisticated instrumentation that we have available in our uh, laboratories today. And, you know, we, 
often uh, kind of look back on uh, a bygone era as uh, somehow having been more primitive. They were just as smart as we are today. <laughs> but of course, they didn't have the piles of information that we have today. But it also meant that they had to be more ingenious. And uh, when you think of the discoveries that were made in the in the 1800s, uh, really, it's uh, quite amazing. Uh, that was that was really was when science got um, got rolling around the, you know 1850. Uh, the chemical industry got rolling then, you know, with the discovery of synthetic dyes, which then eventually led the way to the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, this was also the time when the steam engine was invented, uh, telegraph was invented. Uh, so th that was a, a hot era. And in fact, you know, in 1851, there was a, a huge exhibit in, uh, in London uh, and uh, all kinds of novel technological discoveries were uh, exhibited there, including Charles Goodyear's vulcanized rubber. There was a whole room where just about everything in the room was made of vulcanized rubber. And also demonstrated at the same 1851 uh, exhibit were all the properties of, of gutta percha, uh, including uh, jewelry. Uh, amazing jewelry was made of gutta percha. And uh, it was very often called mourning jewelry because of the dark colors. And uh, this was the kind of jewelry that was um, worn for funerals. And uh, so Gutta Percha has very interesting placement in the history of, of science. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to take a break for the CTV News and be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. Okay, we are back. Uh, England still leading 1-0, 35 minutes into the game. So 10 more minutes until uh, halftime. A uh, very interesting um, uh, quote, uh, someone forwarded by text from Alexander Graham Bell, uh, dated 1891. That's a bit confusing because the quote is, uh, between distant places in the future, uh, messages will be carried electrically instead of by mail. Uh, 1891, well, by 1891, the telegraph had been well established. So uh, messages were already being carried electrically, so I, I don't quite understand that uh, that quote. So maybe whoever sent that in, you can check the date uh, of that or uh, exactly what the quote was, because by 1891, there certainly were messages that were carried um, uh, electrically. Another uh, uh, text question, uh, vaccine, about vaccine hesitancy. I have an Albertan neighbor who spent summers in the Laurentians. He wanted to see me. I asked if he was vaccinated. He said he's waiting for the plant-based vaccine. What does that even mean? Well, I can tell you what that means. Uh, in fact, uh, the plant-based vaccine is being researched by a company that is in, in Montreal called Medicago. And uh, it basically uses a plant as a, as a bioreactor. As with all of the other vaccines, 
the goal is to produce a piece of the spike protein of the virus so that you can um, introduce it into the body, provoke antibody uh, production against, against it, so that next time when the real virus is encountered, the body's antibodies will recognize it, complex with it, and, and, and destroy it. So the idea here is to uh, develop the genetic sequence for the, the protein that, that you want. And this, this can be quite easily done. Uh, I mean, you, uh, these days, uh, to make a, a particular uh, protein in, in the lab is, is not uh, all that uh, challenging. So anyway, the, once the genetic sequence of the desired protein is known, uh, that genetic sequence can be made in, in the lab uh, from uh, nucleosides. And then it can be introduced into a bacterium. And I think the one they use is Agrobacterium tumefaciens. And uh, that bacterium can be used to infect a plant. And when it infects the plant, it transfers its genes into the plant. The plant will then follow the gene's instructions and crank out the protein, which can be isolated from the plant. So this is what is meant by a plant-based vaccine. But the end result is exactly the same as with all of the other COVID vaccines. It is to trick the body into thinking that it has been invaded by the virus so that antibodies will be generated. But in fact, there has been no viral invasion. It was just a piece of the virus, a piece of the spike protein. And that tricks the body into producing antibodies. So that's what we mean by uh, a plant-based vaccine. And uh, exactly when that will uh, come on the market uh, is, is not clear, but the research is quite an advanced stage. So we're not talking decades, we're talking maybe a, a year or two until this becomes a realistic uh, possibility. I still don't have a, an answer to the questions that I asked, and I find that uh, quite surprising, except maybe the answer is that everyone is watching the soccer game. Uh, the question about um, James Bond, that should be an easy one. What liquid was in the fountain pen that he eventually used in order to dissolve the bars on, on a prison cell in which he had been incarcerated? Uh, the other one is somewhat more challenging, but I'm sure that there are people out there who have uh, uh, scientific uh, knowledge because what I was after was uh, when we talk about this, the Delta variant, which is scaring all of us now. Uh, although it seems that the vaccines are working against the Delta variant, although maybe not quite as well against the uh, original virus, but still work uh, very well. And I wanted to know what was meant by the uh, appellation D614G. That's the mutation that... Um, makes this Delta variant so scary. So what does that terminology mean? What is the D, what is the 614, and what is the G? I mean, surely we have some uh, students of chemistry, biology, biochemistry, genetics, uh, who would be able to answer that question. So people, go to it, get to work. Now, talking about this Delta variant, uh, Yesterday and the day before, of course, uh, you heard this issue about the possibility of having to have a booster shot. And Pfizer apparently is going to apply in the U.S. Uh, uh, to the FDA uh, for the possibility of using uh, a booster. Uh, this has created uh, quite a squabble 
because uh, uh, both NIH and FDA in the U.S. say that uh, so far they know of, of no uh, evidence uh, that would suggest that at this point uh, a booster is, is necessary. And uh, Pfizer, of course, has uh, a lot of research in this. They're the developer of the original uh, vaccine. And uh, their data is going to be uh, laid out in front of a, a rather exalted uh, uh, committee tomorrow that uh, includes uh, Anthony Fauci. It includes the uh, director general of the, uh, of the FDA, uh, people from NIH, uh, uh, David Kessler, a former uh, 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 FDA director. So uh, we'll see what happens tomorrow uh, uh, at this meeting and what evidence uh, Pfizer really has that made it apply for the possibility of using a, a, a booster. But uh, even, they, uh, even Pfizer says that they're not suggesting at this time that, that uh, a booster would be needed by the public at large. What they're concerned about is that people who have various uh, uh, kind of uh, immune deficiency diseases and people who are senior may be the ones who may need uh, a, a booster shot. Uh, but it's just interesting to see this kind of little squabble between the um, FDA and uh, and Pfizer. So we'll we'll just have to wait and see uh, what the information is. Uh, as you know, it's a capital mistake to theorize before one has the facts, and that, of course, is a famous Sherlock Holmes uh, quote that I've uh, often used. So let's wait and see. Uh, I think it is quite a reasonable um, possibility, though that in the long run, boosters will be necessary uh, because there certainly will be variants. I mean, uh, there already are hundreds and hundreds of variants every time that a virus replicates inside an infected person. There's always the chance of a mutation, the mutation meaning the replacement of one amino acid by another one, which can lead to uh, consequential changes or totally benign changes. It depends on where in this protein chain this change in amino acids uh, occurs. There are mutations, uh, hundreds and hundreds of them, which are totally inconsequential. Uh, but then there are some where just a single change of one amino acid for another uh, may have a, a very serious uh, consequence. So at this point, uh, we really cannot tell for sure just which variants will emerge that will require uh, a booster. But it should not be surprising that they, that may be a possibility because, after all, this is what happens with the flu vaccine every year. And, uh, you know, it's, it's obvious that, that boosters have been given to, uh, annually. And we may be seeing the same thing with, uh, uh, with the, this uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus as well. All right, let me formulate my question again. Uh, what does the D614G mean? And actually, in the little discussion that I just had today, I think I gave a pretty significant uh, clue about that. So I want to know, what is the D614G mutation? What do the letters DG mean? And what is the number 614? The other question, I think, uh, has now been, no, not exactly been answered. There are a lot of people who have texted in possible answers about what the liquid was in the 
fountain pen that James Bond was given that he used to dissolve the bars in his prison cell. Okay, we will get back to both of those, but we do have to take a look at traffic, and we will be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figure it out what's true. Halftime in the England-Italy game with uh, England holding the 1-0 lead. All right, let's get to the lines, and we will go to Rod. Rod. Hello, Dr. Joe. Hi. So you got an answer for me? Yeah, I think the, uh, I'm guessing, I don't have a priori knowledge, but I'm guessing that the liquid that James Bond may have used would be aqua regia. It was aqua regia, exactly. Do you know what aqua regia is? I think I do, but I have a question about it. I think it's okay. three parts nitric to one part hydrochloric acid. Or I think the it's the around. other way around. Okay. I think it's the other way. Okay. But I have a question for you. Uh, it seems, I, it's my understanding that what makes an acid an acid is the concentration of hydronium ions. So is I don't understand true? why aquaregia behaves more like an acid than either of its components. Can you explain that? Uh, not really. Not really. Um, oh, I stumped the chemist. I guess, it, well, it's a, it's a synergistic uh, effect, which is, you know, I mean, that's not so unusual in, in, in chemistry. When, when uh, uh, you have a mixture of two substances, they will behave differently from uh, individual. So I, I think the, uh, obviously, the, the anions there are the nitrate ion and, and the chloride ion. And when uh, both are present together in the solution, somehow each one releases its, its attached hydrogen uh, more readily because uh, there's some some kind of driving force uh, for the chloride ions and the nit nitrate ions to associate. Uh, it's I don't know if it has if it has ever been you know perfectly explained, but. Like I said, it's not such an unusual phenomenon that you mix together two acids and they, the end result is uh, a stronger acid than either one because of the the desire for the anions themselves to somehow bind together. But I'm, I'll look into it a bit more to see whether or not you know, more is known um, known a, a, about this. But there's no question that you know aquaregia is a stronger acid than either hydrochloric or, or nitric acid. Uh, it is not quite as strong as the way that it is uh, shown in the movies. Well, as I understand it, aquaregia will dissolve gold. Is that correct? Oh, it will. Of course. That's that's why it is yeah. called aquaregia, because gold was the royal metal, right? Aquaregia means that, you know, the uh, aqua, of course, is water, and regia is royalty. So gold was always known as royal metal, and so aquaregia uh, did dissolve it. Uh, indeed, that was one of the ways that you could test whether or not you know, a sample was authentically gold, uh, because in the old days, uh, before oh. sophisticated you know chemical testing, uh, uh, there were all kinds of substances that could be made to look like gold, but mm -hmm. um, if they did not if they only gold would dissolve in uh, in aqua regia, 
Anyway, I'll, I'll see if we can find out exactly why the, uh, the mixture is uh, so far is so much more potent than each of the ones. It's it's a it's a very good question, but I doubt that there's a straightforward explanation. But I, I will certainly uh, look for it. Okay, thanks a lot. Uh, also, uh, there was a clarification texted in about um, uh, the quote by Alexander Graham Bell. And apparently he was bemoaning the fact that letters from his wife in Italy took so long to arrive in Cape Breton, where he lived at that time. Uh, well, that, that makes sense. They, what I'm questioning here is the 1891 date, because by that time, telegraph messaging across, uh, across the ocean was, was commonplace. So certainly his wife could have telegraphed sent a telegram uh, to him. It didn't have to be uh, mail. Uh, so I don't know. But that's 1891. There already was electronic uh, uh, transmission uh, for sure. And uh, so I see people are still befuddled by the other question. I think we have Greg on the line. Greg? Yes, Dr. Joe. Hi. Hi. By the way, Dr. Joe, I've been listening to all your uh, webcasts there on uh, on the Internet. And they're mighty interesting. I would certainly recommend that people do the same. Oh, thank you. Maybe I should mention that. Uh, uh, I started sort of a, a new little venture. I started about 10 days ago where uh, every morning I, I produce about a, you know, a three-minute video uh, about something that I've come across that's interesting. It may be something current. It may be something historical. Because I found that people don't like to listen to, to long-involved uh, uh messages and, i've been uh, listening to uh, everyone and they're very interesting well thank you and uh, so uh, if anyone wants to get in on this uh, they're three minutes, hope easy and interesting listening and uh, i'm developing a mailing list uh and if you want to be on that list and get this in your uh, email inbox every every day uh, you just send me a, an email it is uh, joe, J-O-E dot S-C-H-W-A-R-C-Z at McGill dot C-A. I'll put you on the mailing list. Uh, but you can also just go to our YouTube channel. Uh, and uh, they're, they're all there. So you can even look at the, the ones that I've, uh, I've done before. Right. I've already uh, done that, Dr. Joe. So that's, yeah. of course, for other listeners. Uh... Yes. So it's uh, YouTube uh, dot McGill uh, OSS. And you see everything uh, there. Okay, Doc, Greg, I wanted to it. answer your variant yeah. question there about the letters and numbers. Okay, good, good. So I think that um, the the, uh, the D means for a deletion of a, of a base pair at uh, at position six seventeen, and the G is uh, is guanine, I guess one of the 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 halves of the base pair. Actually, no, you are kind of on the right right track. So what we're talking about here is a protein, right? The, the genes code for proteins. And the D614G refers to the replacement of an amino acid by another one at the 614th position okay. uh, in that protein chain. So what we're talking about is the spike protein, the protein that is on the surface of the, of the virus that it uses to interface with a receptor on, on human cells. Uh, the ACE receptor that then allows the virus to infect the cell. And uh, the spike protein uh, mutation that we're talking about is the replacement of one amino acid by another. 
And the two amino acids that we're talking about here are glycine and aspartic acid. So D stands for aspartic acid, G for glycine. So the letter D then followed by 614 and G means that D, which is aspartic acid, which is found in the 614th position along the protein, is replaced by glycine. And this single replacement of one amino acid by another uh, seems to make this virus more uh, infectious. Uh, somehow, this change in the whole configuration of the, uh, of the uh, spike protein allows us to enter the cell uh, more readily. And so that's what the D614 G means. Okay. The delta... By yeah. the way, just one question. With the Pfizer announcement that, we, that you talked about earlier uh, about a booster and all that, why isn't Pfizer uh, tweaking its vaccine now to deal with the, uh, let's say, for example, the Delta variant? Oh, I'm sure they are. Oh, I'm sure okay. they are. But, you know, it's, it's one thing to first figure out exactly what that tweak has to be and then to produce the vaccine, you know, in millions of doses. I mean, that's a... That's a much bigger challenge. Oh, I'm sure that they are working on, on, on that, on, on coming up with vaccines that will deal with each of these uh, variants. Okay, great. But th this, this one that I mentioned, the D614G in the Delta, uh, that's just one of the mutations in there. I think that there are six mutations in that Delta uh, variant. Mm -hmm. But overall, both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines still work against uh, the variants, but perhaps not quite as well. Uh, right, so right. this this should not at all change the messaging. Go and get your vaccine. That's the best way to stay out of the hospital. That's the best way to prevent variants because variants, as I've said so many times before, only occur when the virus replicates inside of a human host. And if you don't give the chance to to um, uh, for the virus to infect, then you will not have mutations. All right, that is it. We have uh, run out of time. The hour has flown by, but we will be back with you same time, same station uh, next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>